The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, your busy business boss, executive, strategist, and transformational leader, whose mission on this show is to educate, engage, and energize the global community on topics of sustainability and ESG. ESG Energized audience, we are doing an executive spotlight episode today. I'm an extremely honored to be joined by Gavin Towler, the Chief Scientist for Sustainability for Honeywell. Gavin, welcome to the show. Hi, Delfina. Hi, everybody. Gavin, we talk on this show from time to time about the Office of Sustainability in different organizations and how companies think about it and their titles. Yours is unique, Chief Scientist for Sustainability. I'm intrigued by that, and I'm also interested to hear your journey and how you became the Chief Scientist for Sustainability. Tell us about you and tell us about why, after such a stellar career, this has become so important to you. How did we get here? Yeah, thanks, Delfina. So, um, yeah, so most a lot of companies have a chief sustainability officer, and, and not many have a chief scientist focused just on sustainability. And sort of how I got here, um, actually, Honeywell's had a chief sustainability officer since 2004. Um, Evan Van Hook was our chief sustainability officer for a long time, and Evan did an absolutely fantastic job um, launching Honeywell uh, down the path that we're on. It's sort of a tribute to Evan that when he retired, they actually split his job into four different parts. Literally, we needed four people to cover all the things that Evan was doing. Um, so my background is I, I've been in R&D all of my career. So I was the chief technology officer of one of our businesses, and um, I grew up through a business within Honeywell called Honeywell UOP which develops technologies for the oil, gas, petrochemical industry. So you might think like, okay, wait, so where are we going here? An R&D person from the oil and gas sector doesn't sound like someone who'd um, be into sustainability. But obviously, when, you, when you're doing R&D, when you're thinking about the future technologies we need, particularly in the fuels and petrochemical space, you have to take a long view. So a lot of the things that I've been working on, actually through the whole 25 years I've been with Honeywell, have been sustainable technologies. And about five years ago, um, Suresh Venkatrali, who's our um, CTO of Honeywell, asked me to um, take on coordinating sustainability technology across the whole of Honeywell. So for about the past five years, I've been leading a, a cross Honeywell team trying to understand all the different things that we do in the sustainability space. So it was kind of a natural progression when Evan said he was retiring for me to uh, step up and say, well, look, I'll take on the coordination of all of our different activities in sustainability and communicating what we do for our customers and what we do through our offerings to help make a more sustainable world. And that's really what my job is as the uh, chief scientist for sustainability. Well, Gavin, our my audience, uh, being that this is the Oil and Gas Global Network, my audience is extremely familiar 
with UOP and the important role that Honeywell plays in, in our industry and the services and, and the dedication that you have, have been giving us for that time. Um, we were just, just a, a comment, last week we were at the Women Offshore Conference. I was honored to, to speak at that conference. And I was talking to uh, the head of sustainability for a company. And the question from the audience was, how do you talk, pre- present yourself as a sustainability uh, someone dedicated to sustainability when you're inside of the oil industry. And she gave a beautiful answer. And I think that yours echoed exactly what she was trying to say. So I, I hope so. And I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the oil and gas industry, everybody who's inside the industry knows, right? The industry is, exactly. not, there, is not there just purely for the joy of taking oil out the ground. Right. This is an this is an industry that provides people with the energy that they need, with fuels, with the ability to have personal transportation, with chemicals that we need that go into all kinds of aspects of the modern life. Right. And and everybody in the industry gets the fact that we need to do that in a sustainable way. So I think, um, you know, at least with from my perspective within the oil and gas industry, we've been talking about sustainability as long as I've been working. So 30 years or more. And um, it's it's great now to see that it's it's catching on more in society in general and with other companies. But I honestly don't think that the oil and gas industry are, are kind of late to the table. I think it's something we've been we've been giving a lot of thought to for a long while. Exactly, and it's just it's not something to advertise. It's not something to make fanfare about. You just do it. So on that note, how exactly is uh, Honeywell? What is Honeywell doing to help? companies reduce environmental impact? Yeah, so um, obviously Honeywell, there's two aspects to this, right? There's what we do ourselves as a company, and then there's what we do for our customers. Um, Honeywell, as I said, you know, we, we had a chief sustainability officer back in 2004, and Evan launched us on a plan then, and since 2004, we've actually reduced 90% of our own carbon footprint. And um, we've signed up for the uh, DOE's energy goals, so we're going to have reduced our carbon footprint another 50% versus 2018 by 2030. And we've, we've pledged to be uh, carbon neutral in, in our scope one and scope two, so our own operations by 2035. So, so we ourselves are addressing our own environmental footprint. But our impact is much bigger than that, obviously, because as a supplier of technologies, so process technologies, catalysts and materials for the, uh, the, the oil and gas industry, um, automation technologies for the process industries, for buildings, for aerospace, um, and, you know, efficient combustion technologies and things like that. Through our portfolio products, we, we have a lot of impact on environmental sustainability, but also on safety and resilience, which are other key factors in sustainability. And in fact, if you look at Honeywell, we're a $35 billion company. And 60% of our revenue comes from what we call our ESG-related products. So environmental safety and resilience. So that's $21 billion. So obviously, this this really matters to us um, as as a business, as a business opportunity, as well as as the fact that it engages our employees. And it's great to work for a company where you feel you're, you're making the world safer, more sustainable. So let's unpack that a little bit further. Um, few weeks ago, I had Mickey Corcoran on my show. She is the VP of sustainability for SLB, formerly Schlumberger. Uh, and she was talking about that in- incredible importance for her organization to be able to provide 
sustainable solutions to their customers, not just within the energy energy industry, but beyond the energy industry and to adjacent uh, industries, just as just as Honeywell has. But one of the things that she highlighted was there is also this difficult straddling that you have to do that sometimes what you do to help other companies may actually be a detriment to your own organization from an environmental scoring perspective. So Gavin, I'm, I'm pleased to have you here on to talk about another topic that I, I've addressed on this show, specifically with Dr. Robert Kester, who is the Chief Technology Officer for Emissions at Honeywell here in, in Houston. And I also got to talk to his, to, to his boss, Ravi Srinivasan, at the press tour in Chicago. So could you w- just give us an update on what Honeywell is doing to help the industry, our industry, address the topic of emissions? Yeah, there's a number of things. And, and Robbie and Ravi are, are great. Um, Robbie's the guy who first ever let me see, see methane. Um, so the, the um, work that R- Robbie's been doing around um, cameras, the Rebellion camera that basically can see in the infrared, um, that actually gives you a device that you can point at a plant and you can see any emissions that are infrared absorbing. So we, we tune it usually to focus on methane, but in fact, you can look at any greenhouse gas. It's really useful for um, identifying uh, fugitive emissions. Now, obviously, the camera is um, not cheap. So what we did was we also developed the um, little versatilis meter, which is the uh, which is a much simpler one, which basically is just a flammability meter. And um, the versatilis meters are cheap enough; you can get a, a few dozen of them, stick them all around the plant, and then the AI system that comes with it will tell you based on where the wind's blowing. Um, which way, which direction the leak's likely coming from. And that helps you identify if, you, if you've got any um, relief valves that are not closed properly or um, shaft seals, pump seals that may be leaking or um, flames, flares, um, burners, whatever, um, furnaces that haven't ignited properly and are leaking methane. So all of this helps you to find methane sources. Obviously, um, that, that's useful in a downstream context. In, a, in an upstream context, if you're looking at like compressor pumping stations, things like that, you can do the same thing. And um, it, it, it's really important that we address methane because methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It's actually more than 20 times worse than CO2 um, right, as a greenhouse right. gas. Um, but it's also a great payback because you know, most places where the oil and gas industry operates, if you can get methane, you can actually sell the methane. Um, yep. And if you, yep. if, if, even if you're in a market where you're producing oil and you don't want the gas, you can burn the gas in a gas turbine and sell the electricity. So almost everywhere in the world where you're in the oil and gas business, it's better for you to actually use the methane than just vent it into the atmosphere. So when you think about carbon abatement curves, you think of all the options you have for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and what has a great payback. Obviously, throwing away hydrocarbons has a great payback. Um, because then you can you can burn it, you can either make power or you can actually sell it as fuel. One of the things that we talk about consistently, which you have just highlighted, Gavin, is the need for suppliers of solutions to really truly understand the oil and gas industry, which Honeywell 
is in a position to do so since you've been a part of our industry um, for decades. But it goes to the topic of credibility. And I have been reading about your environmental sustainability index. And I would like for you to share with my audience a little bit about the ESI and how that launching the ESI uh, helps us advance our efforts in sustainability. Yeah, so the the um, ESI is really a poll of um, people who generally C-suite. They're in. They're either um, sustainability leaders or they're manufacturing leaders or site leaders, um, and it's it's divided across um, three regions: so the Americas, EMEA, and um, Asia Pacific. And uh, it's carried out actually by the Futurum Group every quarter for Honeywell. And uh, we, ask the, we ask some of the same questions every quarter. We also vary a few of the questions. And the intent of this is really to judge what's the sentiment of this group of leaders around a range of issues related to sustainability. Obviously, as a, as a technology provider, you know, we, we, we believe that the time is now that uh, a lot of our solutions are ready to go, that uh, projects should be moving ahead, but it's easy for us to be out in front. Um, and and you know, that's the problem with being a thought leader is sometimes you can get too far out in front of everybody else. So it's important for us yeah. to have this benchmark to understand where our customers are, um, where the rest of the space is, and also to just understand what people think are the critical areas um, that we need to be addressing. So it's been interesting because we've done this now for over a year, and we're seeing some definite patterns in the the uh, data that we're getting back from from this survey every time. And uh, it's it's actually helping us to inform how we prioritize our our messaging around sustainability, particularly in different regions that are at different points on the journey. Two questions off of that. Um, first is. How, what do you say to people that ask you, can I really trust this data? Because we're seeing a lot of surveys. We're seeing a lot of people saying different things that they've got the information. Why do we want to trust this data? And then I'll follow up with my next question. Well, I'd say when you, when you look at the trustworthiness of data, obviously a survey is a survey. Right. And, and um, you know, we, we believe that the, uh, the, the groups that we're polling are representative. We believe that, it, you know, we actually break out all the results by region, by, um, by sector and things like that. So um, th- that is what it is, but, it, but it's only opinion. But more broadly, you know, obviously for Honeywell, when we put out data and we talk about things like our carbon targets or the capabilities of our technologies, 60% of our business is in this ESG-oriented space. Yeah. So for us to be in business, it is critical that we be credible. So when we make claims about the performance of our technologies, about um, you know emissions targets that we've hit or things like that, we go through a great deal of scrutiny. We do a lot of technical peer review. A lot of um, we 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 often actually go for third party peer review before we make claims around things like uh, carbon footprints or anything like that of our technologies. So, for example, a lot of the work that we've done in sustainable aviation fuel around the uh, echo finding process and um, the, the process for converting. Um, uh, fat soils and greases into jet fuel. Well, we, we had all of the life cycle analysis for that done by a third party because we wanted to be absolutely sure that we weren't fooling ourselves and that we could, when we were making claims about the carbon footprint, that they'd be completely credible and backed by the most, by the soundest possible science. 
obviously you can't do that when you're doing something like this. So that is actually because it's very much subjective. It's what do people think about what's going on in the world at the moment. Right. So it's not quite the same le level of uh, scientific rigor. But, um, you know, as, as a company that, that's offering solutions to these problems, it is critical that we never greenwash, we never exaggerate the impact of what we have. So, Gavin, you mentioned something about regional aspects. And with all the natural disasters the, in devastating global communities, the conversation, I think, is, has gotten more intense. How do you think companies feel this might impact their sustainability efforts? And how do we need to view this as a global uh, community? Yeah, that was an interesting thing, actually, that came up in this uh, recent round of the um, of the survey, because um, over 60 percent of the respondents actually said that the the recent increase in, um, you know, forest fires, uh, droughts, floods, um, just severe, severe weather events um, was causing them to actually rethink or increase or accelerate their their sustainability initiatives. So clearly it's something that's on a lot of people's minds. Um it, it is interesting that that uh, you know we're we're currently at about one point three degrees of warming, um, but because this is an El Nino year, it's a little bit warmer, and so this summer we got to experience what one point five degrees of warming would look like. Well, uh -huh. one point five degrees is what the wildest possible success of the Paris Agreement will be. Okay, and the window yep. for us to hit one point five degrees is is getting pretty close to closing now. So. Um, the IEA um, put out a report earlier this year that said it's just about possible if we really ramp up our um, uh, all of our efforts to decarbonize the economy, to reduce greenhouse gases, it's just about possible we might get to 1.5 still. Um, 1.5 was the aspirational goal, obviously, of the Paris Agreement. The main goal is to get to two degrees of warming or less. Uh, yeah. If we carry out all of the policies as currently passed, we'll probably end up somewhere around about 2.4. So clearly, we, we do need to do more, and uh, we do need to pick up the pace a little bit in terms of investment in um, in, in, in things like uh, uh, the energy transition, and also in abating some of the other greenhouse gas emissions like methane and uh, and uh, F gases and other things that have an impact aside from just CO two. Gavin, when you speak, I get the overwhelming sensation that you're optimistic that you think we can get there or maybe you know we can get there why are you so darned optimistic yeah i think um to, to me the reason i would say you have to be optimistic about this is because these are all actually fundamentally solvable problems Right. We, we kind of know how to actually do most of the energy transition. There's a bit of a tendency in the environmental movement for people to be all doom and gloom and fatalistic. And that, that makes people feel overwhelmed and powerless and unable to change things. But actually, the um, changes that are needed are all well understood. We know that we need to electrify more things. We need to switch to fuels like uh, sustainable aviation fuel and hydrogen for those things that can't be electrified. And the issue isn't so much can we do it. It's not a question of technically we don't know how to solve these problems. It's more a question of how do we make it more socially uh, attractive by basically reducing the price. We know that all the types of energy we use at the moment are the lowest cost type of energy. right? That's kind of economically yeah. obvious. And so we're asking people to switch from low cost energy to higher cost energy. 
but it doesn't yep. have to be enormously higher cost energy, right? M- those of us, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in my late 50s. I remember when we moved from leaded gasoline to unleaded gasoline. Oh my and gosh, we went yes. From high sulfur gasoline to low sulfur gasoline and high yep. sulfur yep. diesel to low sulfur diesel. And, you know, every yep. time the, the industry pointed out, this is going to cost more money. This is going to require more processing. This is going to be this is going to be difficult. We're going to have to invest some capital. And the reality is, it always did cost more money, but the amount of extra that it cost was small compared to the normal range of variation that we see in crude oil prices. Right? We've seen crude oil at twenty dollars and at one hundred and twenty dollars in the past five years, and so prices yeah. go up, prices go down. And yeah, okay, it, for people who are on lower incomes, it is much harder to absorb high prices. And that's something that different societies will deal with in different ways, depending on, on, on their politics. But we can do this. We can make the technology better. We can find a path that gets us to lower greenhouse gas footprint. And this really just requires Tapping into one of humanity's best resources, which is our creativity, our ingenuity, our technical talent, to find ways to make the transition smoother. So, yes, I am optimistic. And I think, uh, you know, for people who are starting their careers um, in chemical engineering or, the, uh, you know, in, in any other discipline where you're working in the energy and fuels industries, um, you're going to have a great career because, first of all, people will still need energy and fuels in the future. Right. The need for transportation, the need for heating, for um, fuel, for cooking is never going to go away. We just have to find a way to do that using fuels that don't cause as much global warming. And I think um, that, that, that creates a, a, a mandate for development of new technology. It creates an incentive for people to come out with new processes and better equipment. And so it's an exciting time to be working in the, the fuels and energy industry. Gavin, that is a perfect note for us to end this executive spotlight session, but I'm going to give you the last word. Is there anything else that you would like to say to my audience? Um, I, I can't imagine that there, there isn't something like one more thing that you want to leave them with. I, I would say as just sort of a final closing thing, I would hope everybody who's uh, listening to this and everybody who's interested in the, the space of sustainability keeps focused on find the better answers. It really doesn't matter what you're working on, whether you're working on the hydrogen economy, you're working on biofuels, you're working on um, batteries or electrolyzers, or you're, you're just trying to figure out how to be more efficient in processing oil and gas. Everything is part of the answer. Right. It really doesn't matter the area of your research. And um, we, we as a society, we as humanity do need to get to more efficient, cleaner energy. And that's a great project to work on. That's a, that is what the National Academy of Engineering calls a grand challenge. So um, I would mm. just encourage everybody who's working in this space to keep plugging at it because everybody's contributing to the answer. Thank you. Fantastic, Evan. Um one of the things that I do want to end this show by reminding folks of is something important that I hope has come out in this discussion and that the Honeywell organization itself is not just providing solutions for their customers, as Gavin has explained brilliantly, but also at the beginning of the show, he mentioned the work of the former chief sustainability officer, Evan Van Hook, who set Honeywell up to have this uh, topic of sustainability infused into their organization and part of their DNA. 
that's the the energy, that's the excitement that you hear, that's the dedication that you hear because organizations need to live this internally and believe it internally and then you see the results. Gavin, thank you so, so very much. We are going to put in the show notes a link to the ESI uh, survey that you mentioned and I think that this is probably one of the best shows that we've recorded. Gavin, thank you so much. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.